That's so good. Um, I, I talk about it every week, but just getting, getting kind of caught up in that moment. Uh, it's so amazing. You know, the truth of what we, of who we found in, in Christ Jesus is uh, just unbelievable. Uh, and I, I don't know if you ever find yourself kind of awestruck by that um, again. But I do. I don't know if you ever sense that. Uh, well, here we are. You know, I was talking to somebody before the service today, and um, man, it seems like the summer is just ripping past, doesn't it? Does it feel that way? Does anyone feel like, you know, it's July almost, right? July. This is the 4th of July week. It's crazy. And I actually sense this more in my children than I do in myself. Because, you know, as an adult, and I've told my kids this, you know, unless you're a school teacher, which God loves school teachers, <laughs> summers are the same, you know. It's just a little more depressing because you can't get out of your routine to get out and enjoy it. You gotta, that's probably have vacation. You've got to stake a claim. You know, this week, I'm going to have fun. You know, uh, always, the, what about last week, those weeks clicking by. And I just see it my kids. I see, you know, the beginning of school's out. And it's like, woo And then and I'm looking outside right now. You guys just gorgeous outside. I can't believe you're all here. <laughs> what are you thinking? You know, actually, the last few weeks, we've noticed that we talk about these kind of summer slumps and Lance's small group. I'm not sure what's going on there, but, you know, they've been kind of getting out and getting the vibe of summer. And, and, uh, but we talk about that, you know. We say, well, you know, um, I was talking to a friend of mine who's a pastor, and he says, well, you know, numbers are light, but, but people are on vacation. That's what's going on. People are on vacation. Matter of fact, at the PB&J Fest yesterday, numbers were light, right? And so it's just kind of this thing that happens in summertime. We're just like, you know. Enjoy that break. Enjoy that cycle. And um, one thing that's been so hard, and I don't know if, if any of you guys are, uh, um, have your summertime things that happen, but what happens in the summertime is uh, these little two-wheeled vehicles come out on the streets. You know what I'm talking about? And they just, and they mock you if you're a guy, and maybe if some girls. They kind of, they have loud pipes on them. And they, they, you know, you're sitting there in the minivan with the air conditioning on, and a guy pulls up next to you, you know, and he's got like the do rag, and it's like, and you don't even want to look at him because you're just like, oh my gosh, it's summertime, and these, and so I, you know, and so it, and I, I've been praying against that a little bit in my life because it puts that little thing like, oh, you know, it's get out on the road, man, and two wheels and. I don't know what that is. There's some kind of beckoning, some call to journey. And I, I mention that because I very much have experienced, and I believe you have too because you're here, that this, this following after Jesus, the risen Lord, the, the God on the cross, is a journey of a lifetime. It's a journey. It calls us out into these kind of free and open roads. I think I've shared with you before, I had this experience one time where uh, I went to a biker rally and I rode down, and I experienced God so profoundly honey. She's not even here to hear it. Dang it. On the front of that Harley Davidson. No, I did. You know, it, it, it was so profound to be immersed in God's creation. And we see it. Now, if you love winter, you might see it in the wintertime. I love snow. I, I see the grace of God in snow, too. But there's just something about it. So I mentioned all this because uh, it's summer and these things are out there. Well, I, I, I watched this video. I have it over here. We were going to show it to you. I think I broke all the stuff today with this video trying to put it on. But uh, it's called The Long Way Around. Have any of you heard of this? 
This is uh, Ewan McGregor and Charlie Borman, the best friends, right? And Ewan McGregor is the guy who plays in uh, Star Wars, and he's been in a lot of different movies or whatever. But um, him and this buddy of his, they, they live in London, and they just decided one day, well, for a long time, wouldn't it be cool if, if we could go uh, ride around the world on our motorcycles? Okay? But they, they live in London. They start thinking, I wonder if we could ride from London to New York. And this thing kind of seeded this idea. It's a journey of 20,000 miles. I think the tag is something like 20,000 miles, two bikes, two best friends, and a journey of a lifetime. And, and I just was profoundly struck. I watched this thing. And, um, and, it's, and they, they always they just head uh, east, as they keep saying. What are you going to do? We're going east. That's the whole plan. They're going east. They're going east. And these two guys, and there's doubters, and it reminded me when I was watching this video, these two guys, because early in the planning stages, much like Nehemiah, there were these guys who were saying, it can't be done. You're not going to be able to do that. Do you know you're going to have to go through Russia and Siberia and all these dangerous places where, where mob rules, and, uh, and, and, but they, they set out. And, and by the way, they were going to do it in 115 days, 115 days to ride a motorcycle around the world. And so... Uh, I was just kind of struck by the parallels between that and what we've been talking about with Nehemiah and the wall. That, that there's, this, there's this long journey. And we talked last week, and we sang that song again today. I'm so glad we brought it back, that, that all things are possible. Because that was, you know, last week God proved that all things were possible. He'd done the impossible uh, through Nehemiah. But one of the questions that I have is, what's the deal with this wall? We talked about that a little bit earlier. But, you know, there's something that happens in the text this week. And... Uh, and it's like a turning point in the text because the wall is finished. We kind of had that celebration last week about, you know, God can do all things. But the last two weeks of the series, and we're going to wrap Nehemiah in two weeks, um, I want to uh, focus on this, this churchy word. I love the video today. This churchy word of discipleship. And it can look, you know, what does that even mean? What does that mean to us? But there's something that inherently, when you, it's a following of Jesus Christ we do right? We don't, um, we don't set complacent in our lives. And, and if you hate change, I heard someone say recently, the only thing that's guaranteed in life is change, you know? It's the one thing that's going to happen. And so they, there's, I don't know who this was, maybe it was Dave Ramsey actually not thinking about it. He said, uh, if, if you hate change, you're going to have to get over it because things are changing. And, and Jesus Christ is very much this Messiah who calls us on this journey to follow after him. And the disciples, those who are eager to learn, are those who are always, always chasing after him. There's this old, uh, proverb, there's this old proverb saying that says, uh, may, may the dust of your rabbi always cover you kind of idea. And that's my prayer with Jesus. I remember one time whenever I was, um, I was in St. Louis and I was going to work and I was a new believer in Jesus Christ. Like Nehemiah and the, the folks uh, in Jerusalem, the wall was up for the first time in my life. And, and, and I, I started to follow uh, Jesus and I was sitting there waiting for a train, an ordinary day waiting for a train. And this guy comes up and he says, hey, can I get a couple bucks from you uh, for some breakfast? And, and uh, I had prayed through how I, how I respond to these kind of requests. And so I decided, uh, no, I can't give you a couple bucks. And he kind of looked at me and I said, but I'll buy you breakfast. You want to go eat breakfast? Now, I was supposed to be at work in about 20 minutes. And, and he said, yeah. And I just remember so distinctly when I got up off of that subway platform seat where I was so comfortable in my daily routine. Matt talked about today being just another day of routines. 
I, I got up and I started to walk up the stairs after this man I did not know. I believed wholeheartedly God had placed in my path. And as I ascended the stairs, following this man I didn't know, there was light at the top. It was a religious experience, what I'm trying to say to you, okay? <laughs> and I heard this song in my head, and it was this song of journey, the greatest adventure you could ever be on. And I felt this peace with it. Now, you see, my wife is a little more disciplined than I. She would probably be thinking, you're going to get fired following this stranger out of a, You're supposed to be at work. What are you thinking? But there came this time in my life where I had to decide, is this following of Jesus, the Lord, my Savior, is this worth what I'm, what I'm breathing, the air I'm breathing? Is it worth what I'm asked to do? And in that moment, for that day, the decision was yes. And I went and followed this, this man and had breakfast. It's Amazing. And um, I drank one cup of coffee. His name was James. He was uh, originally from Chicago, and he was a war veteran. He, he ate an amazing amount of food. Uh, and he ate it in 15 minutes. And as I sat there and, and listened to his story and drank my, my bitter, bitter cup of coffee, um, I was just profoundly struck by the, by the truth of this moment that Christ had brought us here together. And, um, and I just expressed that because the, there's these things that we think, man, that's impossible, or there's no way we're going to take this journey. Or, and I hope that you don't ever, ever, ever truncate your following of Christ, that you don't set your own standards for what it is and is not acceptable in your following of Jesus Christ. Because I believe that God has called each one of you uniquely into your walk with him. And like that motorcycle trip around the world, it's two friends and a long trip, but you're going to make it. And that's if you are walking with Christ Jesus the Lord. We're going to go ahead and get into the text this morning. And we're going to pop through here. We're going to have two weeks to wrap this up. And you'll notice about half the book is left. So we're going to roll pretty quickly. But I want to start in chapter 8. And there it is there. 341 is the page of using our Bibles in the seats. Um, and I'm just going to start reading this. This is what it says. When the seventh month came and the Israelites had settled in their towns, all the people assembled as one man in the square before the water gate. And they told Ezra, the scribe, to bring out the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had commanded for Israel. And I want to stop right there and just say, isn't it amazing that these people who before were kind of just languished on the ground, remember they, when he came in, they were just, it just seemed like they were just destroyed, made fun of and mocked. The wall is up, and we had that celebration. But the next month, all the people, the Israelites, came and settled in their towns. There was this big return, right? And they gathered, and it says that they told, and actually the word there means they commanded, or they demanded, you know, another translation I read said they asked, because <clears throat> maybe they didn't have, excuse me, maybe they have um, that concern that maybe it sounded like they were demanding. But isn't it interesting that these folks, once this wall was up in their lives, they had this great passion for the word of God. They had this hunger for it. This, could, you, could you imagine ever going into a, a church right, on a Sunday morning, and have you seen someone grabbing the pastor by the lapels and saying, you had better preach today. You had better not this, you had better open the word, and you had better expound it, and you had better, you know, you never see that. I mean, most of the time, it's like the kids, and whenever you call in the, in the classroom, you say, does anyone want to give us, you know, answer eight? And everyone's like, because nobody really wants to know. <laughs> no. 
There's this hunger among the people of Jerusalem for the word of God, and they told him to bring the word of God out. And then let's see what they do here. So on the first day of the seventh month, Ezra the priest, this is the first time we hear of Ezra, right? He brought, by the way, he has his own book in the Bible. Uh, he brought the law before the assembly, which was made up of men and women and all who were able to understand it. So everyone's gathered, and he's reading the law to them. And he read it out loud from daybreak until noon, that's about six hours, as he faced the square before the water gate in the presence of the men, women, and others who could understand. And all the people listened attentively to the book of the law. And so there's this hunger, and they're just engaged in this conversation, right? It matters. And Ezra the scribe took, uh, check it out, right? Ezra the scribe stood on a high wooden platform built for the occasion. And beside him, on his right, stood Matthiah, Mattathiah, uh, Shema. Ananiah, Uriah, Hilkiah, and Messaniah. And on his left were Padiah, Heshel. I'm just going to say his friends, right? These guys were all next to him, okay? We're going to roll through a bunch of names today, and I'm not reading them all. You're good. God, have mercy on me for that. You can read them in your free time because you need to know. Uh, but, and Ezra opened the book, and all the people in verse 5 could see him because he was standing above them. And as he opened it, all the people stood up. Right? So that's the first thing that happens. When the, the word of the Lord is open, all the people stand up. Now, if you've ever been in a, a, a church service that does this, it's a unique experience. That when the word of God is read, everyone stands to their feet. But there's something that happens when the people stand up when the word is being read. And Nehemiah is on top of this tower kind of a thing. And I'm not going to stand on here. I'll break my neck. But, but, you know, he gets up there where he can really be seen. There's this kind of, it was built for the occasion, it says. And he opened the book. And... Um, they all stood up. And Ezra praised the Lord, Yahweh, the great God. And the people raised their hands and they responded, Amen, Amen. And they bowed down and worshiped with their faces to the ground. And I want you to see two things here. First, that they were hungry for the word of God. They were just famished because they had it just you have the sense that they had been so long without it. But I don't want to forget the wall, because the wall made all this possible. Ezra returned before Nehemiah. And this wall wasn't built, and they just didn't seem to have this opportunity. And so we talked about that last week a little bit, about what this wall provides. And I'm, gonna, I'm just going to straight up tell you the illusion that I see in the text here, because I want you to hear it, is that I don't know if you've had that experience with Jesus Christ where you trust him as your Lord and Savior. I pray, I pray that you know that fact today. I pray that you know that Jesus Christ died on the cross and covered your sins with his blood, and you would accept that truth today. And what happens is if you are a non-believer, if you don't understand that, because I was there for so long, the, we talked about last week, the first time you can receive that new breath, that new life, the rebirth through Jesus Christ, it's like the first time you can breathe. It's like new wind in your lungs. And that's very much what I see this wall as being, you know, this hedge of protection. I was talking to somebody before the service today. I very much see this wall as Jesus Christ himself, you know, in our lives, but, but bent over us in that moment, that decision moment. And as Protestants, we know that moment pretty well, don't we? We get, we get asked to come forward, respond to this word of God today. Come forward and give your life to Christ. And that's exactly what we do. And we talk about what that means. So we're very familiar with that moment. That the problem is that so many of us go up and get that wall up and then we just stop there. And we don't go anywhere else. And we think that's it. And we wait. And we're not on any journey at all. And so while the wall is so important and that decision for Christ is so important, we're going to talk the next couple weeks about discipleship and about this following of Jesus because it's the most amazing journey you can be on. 
So this is their, but the first thing they did is they had this hunger for the word. So if that's the, I don't know, if you had that experience when you became a believer in Christ Jesus, you get this hunger for truth. You get this weird thing where conversations that you had before didn't make sense to you, and now they do, you know? And I have friends who don't yet believe in Jesus Christ, and when I talk to them, I have to say, I know you don't, but you will. Man, I know it. And I don't have confidence in myself. I have confidence in Jesus Christ to do his work. And that's what's happening. And there's this instant hunger for the word of God. And then there's this instant posturing for praise. And if you look what they did, they, they stood up and then they raised their hands. They said, amen, amen. They said the same thing. Remember last time when Nehemiah called them out on some stuff? And they said, amen, amen. So be it, so be it. Ezra is praising God and the people are affirming the praises of God. You see? That's how that works. And then they bowed low. And I don't, you know, this is the, the prayer position. This is this, this it's a weird thing, right? They stand up, they say, amen, amen. And then they, they, get, they just go face down on the ground. He's a holy God. And that's this whole posture of praise that they have adopted, that they've taken on themselves. That something in their soul has been, you know, invigorated through the building of this wall. And this is where they are, face down before God. I'm going to skip ahead to verse 8 here. It says, the Levites read from the book of the law of God. They made it clear and they gave the meaning so that the people, giving the meaning so that people could understand what was being read. So the Levites were expounding upon the word as they taught it. They were teaching it rightly. The people were listening to it. And then look what happens in verse, verse well, let's read verse 9. Then Nehemiah the governor, Ezra the priest and scribe, right? There's two guys there. And the Levites, all those other dudes, were instructing the people and said to them, this day is sacred to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep. What? I don't know if that caught you off guard at all. It totally caught me off guard. Do not mourn and weep. Read on. It says, because all the people had been weeping as they listened to the words of the law. Isn't that interesting? They're so hungry for it. They demand it. Come out and preach the word. And then they find themselves in this posture of praise and they're face down to the ground. And Nehemiah and Ezra, and they had to say, no, 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 stop. This day is holy. Don't, don't mourn or weep. And you think, what is going on with these Israelites? Have you had that experience? As a believer in Jesus Christ, have you ever been absolutely cut to the core? Hebrews 4.12 uh, says that, uh, that the word of God cuts like a two-edged sword, separating bone from marrow. That you, you ask for this, and then you get it. And they're just kind of inside out about it. I, I, there's nothing in the text that says what they were mourning and weeping about. Were, were they mourning and weeping because they had been so long forgetting they were children of God? Had it been so long since they'd had any peace, any place to breathe? Had it been so long since they were not mourned and mocked and scorned and ridiculed? But something when the word of God was taught, they just wept and mourned. I can identify with the Israelites. I remember that moment. I remember those moments in my early Christian walk where I was absolutely just dismantled by the word of God. still happens. still happens when you look into it. They were cut to the core. This is the word from Nehemiah in, chapter, in verse 10. 
It says, Nehemiah said, go and enjoy choice food and sweet drinks and send some to those who have nothing prepared. This day is sacred to the Lord. Do not grieve for the joy of the Lord is your strength. Like, don't forget. You know, the law could sound like bad news if you've been breaking it for a long time. Can't it? I mean, it can sound like really bad news. Could you imagine just hearing that law being read from the top of this podium, you know? And you're just thinking, we haven't been doing that. We haven't been doing that. We haven't been doing that. This is the holy God. We forgot to do that. And they're just cut down by the demands of the law on their life. And he says, remember, the joy of the Lord is your strength. It's this, the same hand that delivered them from their enemies is their strength in these times. And the Levites calm the people down. I love how they reiterate. They say, be still, because the day is sacred. Don't grieve. And then all the people went away to eat and drink. And look what they did, too. They sent portions of food to, to celebrate with great joy. And to celebrate with great joy, because they now understood the words that had been made known to them. This all of a sudden went from bad news to good news. They get it. God's on their side. And that's okay to feel that way. That's okay to, to still bear the burden. I, I remember for the longest time as a new believer, I would weep, just weep profusely. And everyone would say, what's wrong? What's wrong? I just couldn't figure it out. But I had been so long without the Lord. And you just, it, it's just not instantly over for you on your journey. But there's this peace that comes with it. And then you start to understand things that, that God is on your side, that he's always loved you. He's never despised you. All that time when you thought you were so far from God, he was right there with you. And so they understood these words being made known to them. And then I'm going to bounce along here pretty quickly. But it says on the second, second day of the month, this is the next day, the heads of all the families along with the priests and Levites gather on Ezra the scribe to give attention to the words of the law. Now this is a big deal for two reasons. First of all, because they came back. Because <laughs> after day one, you might be thinking, man, you know. But they came back and they listened. And they found written in the law the word that the Lord had commanded through Moses, which the Israelites were to live in booths during the feast of the seven months, of the seventh month, which is where they found themselves in the seventh month. And they should proclaim this word and spread it through their towns and in Jerusalem. And they said, go back into the hill country and bring back branches and olives and wild olive trees and myrtles and palms and shade trees and make booths as it is written. And so this is what they do. They go out and they come back and they start to celebrate. And my favorite line in this comes in the end here because it says uh, they had never experienced this festival in this way. It's got this idea that they had been trying to keep it on their own, maybe their own power. And, um, but they had never quite experienced it in this way before. I'm just trying to find it right quick. In accordance with regulation, there was an assembly. On the 24th day of the same month, in chapter 9, the Israelites gathered together fasting and wearing sackcloth. I don't want to leave that, fest, that celebration. Oh, here it is, there it is. I just missed it. In 17, the whole company had returned from exile and built booths and lived in them. See, they, had their, they were coming back to their homes, but they built these booths. And it was kind of like a tent. You know, it's like camping, right? It's kind of a summertime activity. And they lived in these tents for seven days. And the eighth day had an assembly. But it says, from the days of Joshua, son of Nun, until that very day, the Israelites had not celebrated it like this. And their joy was very great. 
day after day from the first day to the last, Ezra read in the book of God and, and the book of the law of God, and they celebrated the feast for seven days and on the eighth day. According to the regulation, there was an assembly. So there go the rules. But and so it's basically a tent festival, but it's a Jerusalem edition. So whatever it was they had been doing before, it was never like this. It was never like this. And we're going to talk about some of that stuff. And so the next thing that happens, so you've got the people hungry for the word, and they're posturing for praise. or cut to the, And then they begin to relearn or to learn. I put they begin to learn a new way or relearn an old way to be. They're returning to their roots in some ways. And this festival, this celebration, is the first example of that. And uh, there's this idea that, you know, when, when God says it's time to have a party, you have a party. And that's okay. And, and again, we talked about it a couple weeks ago. I'm not sure how comfortable we are with that. But there are times to celebrate. And then in verse 9, they remind us something. Because it's interesting to me, they, they have this moment where they're cut to the core and they have to tell them, stop weeping and mourning, right? This is a day of celebration. Then they celebrate and they're celebrating. And they're thinking, all right, cool, eight days. And then 24th day of that month, they're told, oh, wait, now you've got to have sackcloth and ashes. Now it's time to mourn. And so they do. And then let's read in verse 6 here. It says, Blessed is your glorious name, and may it be exalted above the blessings of praise. Stand up and praise. I'm going to back up a minute. Stand up and praise the Lord your God, who is from everlasting to everlasting. And then what happens is they begin. I was trying to get my other notes out here because I had these kind of, I have a couple sets of notes today. But there were these three big movements in this text here that, uh, and I love it when my stuff does that. I'm just going to roll right through here. But basically, there are these three big movements in the text. And it's, uh, they remember in verses 6 through 15 of chapter 9, they remember all that God did. And if you re- just look through there in your Bibles, you know, he says, remember God in verse 5, the last part of 5, stand up and praise the Lord your God from whom is everlasting to everlasting and be blessed. And this says, be blessed your glorious name and may it be exalted above all the blessings and praise. You alone are the Lord. And this is him speaking to God. And you made the heavens, the highest heavens, and the starry host. And he goes on and on, it says, and just affirms God's role, affirms God's role. And in verse 9 there, you saw the suffering of our forefathers. You came down on Mount Sinai, but, but they are forgotten. Our forefathers became arrogant and stiff-necked. And it's all this amazing testimony. It's all this amazing testimony about the God that they had forgotten. And then in, starting in verse 16, they begin to confess to God. And if you remember back in the very first chapter of Nehemiah, Nehemiah confessed on behalf of the people, but this becomes the people confessing for themselves. And it starts in verse 16, but they, our forefathers, became arrogant and stiff-necked and did not obey your commands. They refused to listen and failed to remember the miracles you performed among them. And there's this whole remembering, which we talked about last week, this kind of Shema that they're reminded of the story of where they've come from. Look at that. This is so beautiful. But you are a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger, and abounding in love. You know, don't, I always wonder, who are they talking to when they say those things to God? You're talking to God. But do you hear those words yourself? If you're praying to God and you're saying, God, have mercy on me, you're a merciful God. Do you hear those words yourself? It's beautiful. In the middle of this confession, they're remembering God's attributes. And then the last thing, it happens in chapter 9, verse 38. And, it's, and mine has a subtitle that says, um, 
By the way, I want to go one verse before that because look at this. It says, because of our sins. But see, in verse 36, we are slaves today, slaves in the land that you gave our forefathers so they could eat its fruit and, and other good things it produces. And there's this irony that they've returned to the holy land, but they've returned no longer as free people, but as slaves. That's an interesting thought. That they're, they were free. God had given them this land, and their forefathers had disobeyed, and they were, they were thrown out of it. And then here they find themselves again, and they're confessing to God, and they say to God, but see, we're slaves now, slaves in the land that you gave our forefathers and that's an irony, isn't it? It reminds me of Christians who, who are maybe in slavery to something. Paul says it was for the sake of freedom you were freed, you know? And yet we return to the yoke of slavery. We forget what God has called us from and what he's called us to. And then we have to be reminded and, and that we're slaves today in this promised land that you gave us. May it not be that way with us. And in verse 38, they make an agreement. And it says, in view of all of this, we're making a binding agreement. We're going to put it in writing. So in view of this whole story, of the story of our father's sinning, of the story of your love and mercy for us, of the story of our current slavery, in view of all these things, we're going to make a binding agreement and put it in writing. And our leaders and our Levites and our priests are going to fix their seals to it. And there's a whole bunch of names there. It says, the rest of the, in verse 28, the rest of the people, priests, Levites, gatekeepers, singers, temple servants, and all who separated themselves from the neighboring peoples for the sake of the law of God, together with their wives and all their sons and daughters, who were able to understand, all these now join their brothers, the nobles, and bound themselves with the curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, decrees, and the Lord, or the, of the Lord, our Lord. Yahweh. Now, see, that's a scary thing. Because now they've kind of set themselves up, right? They're like, and, and I, I, this is all interesting because Nehemiah, you remember, is the last historical book we have before the coming of Jesus. They've got all the stuff in place. They've got all their religious trappings ready to go. And it's all good. Don't mishear me. But they're not going to swear that, um, you know, this is the promise you make. I promise, Lord, I'll never do that again. If you just have mercy me this one more time, I'll never, I, I'll, I'll make it, I'll do it. But we know the story, right? We know when Messiah comes, they're not found in this place of holiness. They're found in this place of judgment. When Messiah comes, they've turned the laws that were given to them as a gift of grace into slavery itself. But they make this commitment anyway. Chapter 10, verse 39. Make all these promises. And this is the last promise they make. And they say, we will not neglect the house of our God. And this is their commitment. And I think, well, now, it, you know, why, why do they make this promise to God? What does it matter to the Israelites if they keep the house, if they, if they keep the house of, of God in high regard. It's, it's this idea that worship for the Hebrews was definitely a way of life. 
I mean, can you imagine doing a seven-day tent festival where someone preached the word of God the entire time? You know? Can you imagine being so uh, enamored with this um, God who is speaking that, that you dare to follow, you dare to pledge your life to go after him? But we do the same things. And, and in some ways, we're called to the same standard. Something about our lives becomes this always expresses itself as a, as a worship to God. We don't believe that. We believe this is worship, and that's life. But the Hebrews didn't have any kind of disconnect like that going on. They knew that worship was everything. The problem is they got these regulations and law. This is what they thought it was going to be. This is worship. Worshiping the true living God is following all these things, and they made this pledge to do it. But worship is central to how they live their lives. The temple, the, they build the wall, and everyone doesn't live inside the walls. They start to build houses and towns around it again. They come back. They return to their dwellings. This wall, this holy high place, inspires confidence in them for a new walk or a new walk or a new promise. But my fear for you is that to, to believe that somehow you can confess Jesus Christ as your Savior and then say, and I'll never sin again. I'll never mess up again. Because the reality doesn't prove itself to be true. Too often, like the Hebrew nation, we confess, we promise things like that, and then we fall flat on our face. And we end up dragging everything, God, the gospel, Jesus Christ, right through the mud with us because we're no longer following after the risen Savior. The wall, though, affords the Hebrews, for the first time in a long time, the ability to make a choice. And I think that... Uh, this is a couple things we're going to wrap up here with this. But, you know, when we have freedom in Christ Jesus, we can't be deluded into thinking we'll never sin again. Do you ever think that's the case? See, many of us will say, oh, no, no, we know. We're sinners saved by grace. But then we hold it. We get on this pedestal, this high place that we can't get out of. We, 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 we put on these face, fake faces that aren't true. And God can't work in those instances. It seems that there's this kind of limiting that we do of God's ability to heal us. But what we are given in Christ Jesus, like the children of Israel, is for the first time we're given the ability to choose. This week we're going to talk, um, we didn't get next steps in the bulletin, by the way. Did you notice that, that those were missing? Did you notice that there's no next steps on here? We had a couple of them, and we, did, we decided not to put them on there for you. Because the question today for you is, what's the next step on your journey? I have a couple of things, and if you want to write these down, I would encourage you to write them down and read these. Psalm 103 is this most amazing psalm. Uh, when we find freedom in Christ Jesus, when we have that hedge of protection around us, when we see, when he, we have that first breath, and we're in the walls, and he's, he's there, and he's protecting us, and for the first time maybe in our whole lives, we don't have to answer to the enemy anymore. We don't have to be slaves to the enemy anymore. We're given freedom for the first time. In Christ. And early on, it's, it's, we have a tendency to kind of follow that and, and believe that and choose that life. But then over time, we begin to fall. We begin to trip and trip ourselves up and make false promises and make false rules and make false laws. And it's more than, yeah, it's Jesus, but you have to do something else. And, and all this stuff gets in our way. And we find ourselves falling and tripping and stumbling. But I never want you to forget, and Psalm 103 will tell you this, that the freedom that Christ brings you Jesus Christ on the cross is freedom for sin for all eternity. You're free from sin for all eternity. 
and the blood of Jesus Christ. There's no sin that's too much from the handle. Too many times I've seen people in churches, and as long as they can keep up the, the, you know, the holiness, they're okay. But when they fall, man, it's all over. Because the gospel that they believed was they would never sin again. The gospel of Jesus Christ on the cross is it was a payment one time for all sins. Now, like Paul says, do we go on sinning? No, we don't go on sinning. This is discipleship. We're going to grow and learn and follow the Lord. But the freedom goes both ways. Like that knife of the word of God, it cuts both ways. And it's freedom from something, and it's freedom to something. The long way around video, the guy said, all we're going to do is head east. We're going to head east. We're going to head east. Keep going east. The Psalm 103 says, your sins are separated as far as from the east as from the west. This is written First Testament, right? This is pre-Jesus Christ gospel message. Your sins will not be remembered by the Lord of hosts. When Messiah comes, they'll be separated from you as far as they can be. You know whenever they were on that motorcycle trip and they were going east, you know when they ever went west? You know when they ever got to the west? They never got there. They just went around and around. There's no, it never connects. East and west never connects. The sin is so far removed from you, you don't own it anymore. Jesus Christ has bought it on the cross. It's a freedom from sin. But the second part of the freedom, and the freedom we don't talk about too often as, a, as a followers of Jesus Christ, is the freedom to choose. And Paul very clearly in the memory verse this week is Galatians 5.13. It's Galatians 5.13. And it says you can have the right now to choose, brothers. He's talking to people who are already believers in Jesus Christ. You can now choose how to live your life. You can choose to sin. Or you can choose to love. And the freedom that we are freed for is to love for the first time. I'm going to make an argument this morning that if you are not in Christ Jesus, if you do not know God incarnate, on the cross, you couldn't choose to love any more than you could choose to save your life. You have no hope. There is no chance without Jesus Christ on the cross to love anything. So much of our discipleship after Jesus Christ is actually a relearning, an old thing, a true thing, that God loved us no matter what, that God always loved us, that God's always been there for us, that he's never left us. And this is the freedom that we are freed for. We are freed for the first time in our lives to love. The problem is we find that wall and then we find ourselves back in sin. We're back in there, but it doesn't matter because you are still covered by the blood of Christ and you can still come back to him. You can still return to him. You can still love again. Don't ever doubt it. Don't ever doubt it that there's a place for you in the kingdom of God. It's paid for by our Savior, Jesus Christ. I hope today that you're on the journey with Jesus. I hope you're following after him. I hope you struggle with the text. I hope sometimes when you read it, you're not comfortable with what it says. I hope you're blessed. I hope you're edified. I hope that in Christ Jesus, we might all continue to follow him together and learn and grow and become disciples and become eager learners of Jesus Christ, our Lord. But the challenge today to you, and this goes for everyone in the room, every single person here, me, the worship band, the guys in the back, everybody, the kids, everybody, the challenge today is this. Take your next step with Jesus today. Whatever that looks like, take the next step. If you've never trusted Jesus Christ your Savior, trust Jesus today as your Savior. Take that step today. 
If you have trusted Jesus, but you find yourself in sin, trust Jesus Christ to cover that sin. Trust him today. Take the step. And if you find yourself stuck, and this is, I think, what happens. We get there. We get to that place where the wall's built, and then we just get stuck there. And we feel safe, and we feel secure, and we don't ever have to go out again. And we just wait for the big bus to take us to the sky. If that's where you're at today, I pray you would dare to take the next step after the living God. That you would dare to take the next step and follow him. God comes in these inner places of our lives, these inner sanctuaries, and transforms us. That's our testimony as those who were lost but now are found.